Lecture 23, Dyslexia and Other Learning Disabilities. Welcome back. In this lecture, I want to address a topic that is critically important, but that is surrounded by many misconceptions. And that's the topic of learning disabilities. Can you remember how your elementary school taught children to read? I realize that's going back a ways for many of us. Well, when I was growing up, our teacher would often ask students to take turns standing up and reading something out loud. And I can remember looking forward to getting called on so that I could show off my ability to read and receive the teacher's praise. It was a rewarding experience that made me feel good and and it motivated me to want to read more and get better and better at it. But for many children with a learning disability, being asked to read is absolutely terrifying and may even convince them that they must be dumb or that they don't study hard enough. But as we'll see, both of those assumptions are typically wrong. So what exactly is a learning disability? Well, it turns out that most definitions arouse quite a bit of controversy. In fact, experts from different backgrounds even use different terms. For example, the medical community tends to use the term learning disorder, while those in education tend to use the term specific learning disability, or SLD for short. And for the rest of this lecture, I'll tend to use the acronym SLD for a couple of reasons. First, it's short and will therefore save us some time. Also, some people don't like the term disorder because it sounds like a serious medical condition. Finally, adding the word specific at the beginning makes clear that the learning problem is typically limited to a specific domain, like learning to read or learning to write, and would not extend to learning other things like how to ride a bike or tie a shoelace. So let's stick with SLD. The key feature of an SLD is an unusual difficulty in learning some academic domain that cannot be explained by the child's intellect, educational opportunities, sensory abilities, motivation, or emotional state. For example, imagine a child who's having a much harder time learning math than other kids in the same classroom. There could be a lot of reasons. Maybe the child is having a hard time seeing the board and really needs glasses. In that case, the learning problem could be attributed to sensory abilities, and so it would not be considered an SLD. Or maybe the child has a very unstable home life, or is malnourished, or is the victim of some kind of abuse. Well, any of those factors could understandably make it hard for the student to concentrate in school and could lead to learning problems. But again, that would not be considered an SLD because the learning problem can be attributed to external factors that could plausibly undermine the child's emotional state. Another possibility is that the child may not be quite as smart as some of the other kids. After all, children do differ in their intellectual capacity. And kids with lower intellects may well find it harder to learn math than the other kids. But that, too, would not be considered an SLD. And that's a crucial point. SLDs refer to learning problems that are unexpected given the child's intellect. 
It's not that kids with SLDs have low intelligence. In fact, one common approach to diagnosis used to require that the child exhibit a normal score on an intelligence test. The point is that the learning problem is present despite normal intelligence. It's a specific problem in learning a particular academic topic and doesn't imply that the child will have intellectual difficulties anywhere else. And perhaps because of that discrepancy between their intellect and their academic achievement, many people assume that children with a specific learning disability must be lazy. After all, if it's not a problem with their intellect or their vision or their home life or some other obvious factor, then it's natural to attribute the problem to a lack of effort. And although repeated failure in an academic subject can eventually lead to a kind of learned helplessness and to giving up, that's not usually the cause of the problem initially. In fact, many children with an SLD struggle in their learning despite working very hard, maybe even harder than most other children. The implication is that SLDs are caused by something biological in the student's brain rather than something in their external environment. And we'll see some evidence in support of that claim later in this lecture. Now, in addition to the mistaken belief that SLDs reflect low intellect or a lack of motivation, another common misconception is that there's a clear dividing line between kids with SLDs and kids without SLDs. Or, to put it another way, Many people believe that kids with SLDs are categorically different from other normal kids. The truth is that SLDs exist on a continuum, and the threshold for what constitutes an SLD is actually somewhat arbitrary. In some cases, the diagnosis will be easy. I mean, if a child has a very severe problem learning to read that's completely out of line with their intellectual ability, then it might be a very obvious diagnosis. And conversely, you'll also find lots of children whose learning seems totally normal and who obviously don't have an SLD. But the problem is, you'll find children at every point between those extremes. You'll find kids who struggle a little more than average, but for whom the problem is actually pretty negligible. You'll also find kids with a problem that you might call minor, others for whom the problem is moderate, and still others for whom it's significant. So, where do you draw the line? When the line that you draw will be somewhat arbitrary. Well, many scientists actually choose not to draw a line. Instead, they study reading ability or math ability or whatever it is as a continuous variable. And then they try to explain why some kids have a more or less severe disability, rather than just treating it as a binary, black or white outcome. Okay, so SLDs are not the result of low intelligence or lack of motivation, and there's no clear dividing line between kids who have SLDs and kids who don't. One final misconception I'd like to clear up is the idea that learning disabilities are a phase that children go through and that they'll grow out of. In fact, the scientific evidence shows that SLDs tend to persist into adulthood, which makes sense given their biological origin. Now, that doesn't mean that people with SLDs can't adapt and learn to cope with them. They can. Take the famous movie director, Steven Spielberg, for example. 
As a child, he had a very hard time with reading. And to this day, reading still requires a lot of time and effort and is much harder than it is for most other adults. But his job requires him to do quite a bit of reading, especially of scripts. And Spielberg is now one of the most successful movie directors in history. So he has obviously learned to cope with his disability extremely well. Specific learning disabilities can come in a number of different forms. Some children have difficulty learning to write, which is often referred to as dysgraphia. Children with dysgraphia have problems producing legible handwriting and often make an unusual number of spelling errors. Another common form of specific learning disability is dyscalculia, which refers to a difficulty learning math. So students with dyscalculia have much more difficulty learning and using basic arithmetic operations than other children their age. Basic mathematical tasks like balancing a checkbook or estimating the cost of a basket full of purchases would be very tough. Another common form of learning disability is what's called specific language impairment or just SLI for short. Children with SLI exhibit delayed language development in the absence of hearing loss or other developmental delays. SLI is also called developmental language disorder, language delay, or developmental dysphagia. But perhaps the most common specific learning disability, and also the best known, is dyslexia. In fact, some reports estimate that as many as 80% of children with a learning disability suffer from dyslexia. Dyslexia has also received more attention from scientists than any other learning disability. And a great deal has been learned about what's going on. So I'd like to devote the remainder of this lecture to a discussion of dyslexia, the cognitive and neural mechanisms that underlie it and how it's treated. In 1896, an English doctor named W. Pringle Morgan published a case study of a 14-year-old boy named Percy. In the paper, Dr. Morgan described Percy as a bright and intelligent boy, quick at games, and in no way inferior to others of his age. His great difficulty has been, and is now, his inability to learn to read. Percy's experience is not unique. In fact, we now know that hundreds of millions of other people have had similar difficulties learning to read. And scientists and educators refer to that difficulty as developmental dyslexia. It's called developmental to distinguish it from acquired dyslexias that can arise from brain damage in adulthood. But I'll use the shorter term dyslexia to refer to developmental dyslexia for the rest of this lecture. Now, dyslexia is characterized by a difficulty with recognizing or decoding written words that can't be attributed to poor vision, low intelligence, or lack of education. And these problems decoding written words make it very hard for children with dyslexia to read. Some dyslexics report feeling as if letters within words jump around when they're trying to read. If you're listening to an audio version of this course and you want to experience what this is like for yourself, let me encourage you to Google Victor Waddell Dyslexia Simulator. 
Waddell is a web developer who created a web-based simulation based on the description of one of his friends with dyslexia. And for those watching the video version of the course, we've got a little version on the screen here. Now, obviously, no simulation can capture exactly what it's like for a dyslexic to read. But I think this simulation will at least convey something of the frustration that they experience. Okay, now if you think about it, reading involves more than just decoding written words. It also requires the ability to comprehend what sequences of decoded words mean. And although some classification systems include impairments in either process, most scientists define dyslexia as a problem with written word decoding, not language comprehension. For example, most dyslexics can understand spoken language just fine. Their problem is in figuring out what words the letters on the page represent. So the key symptom of dyslexia is an unusual difficulty in recognizing individual written words, both in terms of speed and in accuracy. But there are many other associated symptoms. Children with dyslexia typically have trouble sounding out words. They will often mispronounce words and confuse one word for another that has a similar spelling. They may even complain of feeling sick or dizzy when they read. And because reading comprehension depends on fast and accurate word recognition, comprehension also naturally suffers. Although most dyslexic children can and do eventually learn to read, they typically continue to read more slowly than other people, even as adults. Now, dyslexia is usually first noticed in school, but unfortunately, it's also often overlooked and attributed to laziness or stupidity instead. In fact, dyslexic children often mistakenly conclude that their reading problems mean that they must be dumb, and problems with self-esteem are extremely common. Like most other learning disabilities, dyslexia represents the end of a continuum. And so categorizing someone as dyslexic is not always clear cut. And perhaps as a result, estimates of how common dyslexia is vary. But most scientists believe that somewhere between 5 and 10% of school-aged children could be considered dyslexic. Okay, now that we've got a handle on what dyslexia is like, I'd like to turn to the scientific study of dyslexia and what's been discovered about the mechanisms underlying it. In the 1920s, those who studied dyslexia assumed that it was a visual problem, and children who suffered from dyslexia were often prescribed some sort of visual training as a treatment. And the belief that dyslexia is a visual deficit persists to this day among some people in the general population. But it's wrong, at least in most cases. The evidence suggests that the underlying problem in dyslexia is usually in the processing of phonology. Now, do you remember what phonology is? We actually encountered it before when we were discussing language acquisition. Phonology refers to the basic atomic sounds from which all words are composed. Those atomic sounds are called phonemes, and they differ from language to language. For example, there are a total of 44 different phonemes in English, and every word in the language is made up of a subset of those sounds in a specific order. 
Now, what do you think are the phonemes in the word chop? There are three of them. Ch, ah, and p. Now, notice the phonemes are not the letters. They're the sounds. In fact, some phonemes like ch and sh are written using two letters. And at other times, we write letters that don't correspond to any phoneme, like the gh at the end of the word through. Let's try one more. What are the phonemes in the word lip? They are o, i, and p. And what would you get if you reversed the order of the phonemes in lip? You'd get pill. Now, being able to break down a spoken word into its component phonemes like that, that becomes less important as you get skilled at recognizing hundreds of thousands of words at a glance. But it's a crucial skill when you're learning to read. After all, when you're first starting to read, written words are just unfamiliar strings of letters, and you have to go through a sequence of steps to figure out what word those letters correspond to. And a critical step in that process is breaking down the sound of the word into its component phonemes. Now, it's hard to simulate that experience if you're already a skilled reader, but trying to spell a non-word can give you some idea what it's like. So let me ask you to try to spell a made-up word and reflect on how you did it. The made-up word is Hilderap. So how would you go about spelling Hilderap? If you got a piece of paper, go ahead and write down your guess. Personally, I might spell it H-I-L-D-O-R-A-P, although different spellings are also possible. Now, let me ask you, how did you do that? My guess is that you first identified the component phonemes that made up the word, and then you mapped those sounds onto corresponding letters. Hilderap starts with the sound H, and so the corresponding letter would be H. Then there's the I sound, which corresponds to the letter I, and so on. And presumably, a child who's learning to read is doing something similar when someone reads to them. They try to match up the sounds that they're hearing with the letters that they see on the page. But now, imagine that you have a phonological deficit that makes it hard for you to identify those component phonemes that make up each word. So you can't figure out that Hilderap starts with the sound followed by the I sound. That's obviously going to make it extremely hard to figure out which word on the page corresponds to Hilderap. And that, in turn, is going to make it extremely tough to learn how to sound out words when you're reading. And that's exactly what seems to be going on in most children with dyslexia. They exhibit a deficit in what's sometimes called phonological awareness. That is, they're unaware of the phonological structure of the words that they hear. They can't figure out that b is the first sound in bat and that a is the first sound in after. And that lack of phonological awareness makes it very tough to sound out written words and figure out what they are. Some of the earliest evidence for an impairment in phonological awareness came from studies by Lynette Bradley and Peter Bryant at the University of Oxford. They recruited 60 dyslexic children and 30 non-dyslexic control children, and they gave them all a test of phonological awareness. Specifically, the kids heard four words in which three of the words shared a phoneme 
that the other word didn't have. And the children had to identify which word was different. For example, if you get the four words, red, bed, nod, and fed, then nod is the odd word that doesn't contain the phoneme eh. Or if I give you sun, sock, see, and rag, then the odd word is rag because all the other words start with the phoneme s. Bradley and Bryant found a big difference in the phonological awareness of the two groups of children. First, consider the control group of normal readers. About half of them didn't make any errors at all on the phonological awareness task, and only a quarter of them made more than one mistake. In contrast, over 90% of the dyslexic children made at least one error, and 85% of them made more than one. But Bradley and Bryant didn't stop there. A few years later, they published another study in which they measured phonological awareness in over 400 four- and five-year-old children who had not yet learned to read. Then they tracked those kids' progress in learning to read over the next few years. And sure enough, the kids who exhibited the worst phonological awareness during the initial test were the ones most likely to experience problems learning to read years later. Bradley and Bryant also tested whether training children in phonological awareness could help children's reading development. First, they took 65 children who had not yet learned to read and they divided them up into groups. One group received training in phonological awareness, while another group received training in the meaning of different words. And after two years of training, the reading level of the kids who were trained in phonological awareness was about three to four months ahead of the kids who were trained in word meanings. So taken together, these results suggest that a deficit in phonological processing may be at the heart of many cases of dyslexia. Okay, so far we've just been talking about the cognitive mechanisms involved in dyslexia. But in the last couple of decades, substantial progress has been made in understanding the neural mechanisms too. And that's what I'd like to turn to in our remaining time. Now, you may remember our discussion of neuroimaging techniques like positron emission tomography and functional magnetic resonance imaging from some of our previous lectures. These methods have made it possible to estimate neural activity in human beings while they're performing different cognitive tasks. Well, as you might imagine, these methods have revolutionized the study of many cognitive functions, and that includes the study of reading and dyslexia. Reading involves a variety of cognitive processes. As we've already seen, it definitely involves phonological mechanisms to process sounds, and it clearly also involves other linguistic mechanisms to process the grammar and the meaning of what is being read. And the mechanisms involved in processing phonology, grammar, and meaning are also needed for spoken language, so they're not unique to reading. But reading also requires visual mechanisms to recognize the letters and words, and those mechanisms aren't required for spoken language. They're unique to reading. And so you might expect that neuroimaging studies of reading would find neural activity in brain networks involved in spoken language and in networks involved in visual recognition. 
And that's exactly what these studies do find. Specifically, when people are speaking or listening to spoken language, they tend to activate two major areas in the left hemisphere, both of which are named after the famous neurologists who first identified them. The first is called Broca's area, which is on the left side of your brain toward the front and the bottom, a couple of inches behind your left eye. Broca's area is named after the French neurologist Paul Broca, and it's critically involved in speech production and in processing grammar and phonology. The other major area activated during speech processing is called Wernicke's area, after the German neurologist Karl Wernicke. This region is also on the left side of the brain, a couple of inches above your left ear. And evidence suggests that Wernicke's area and nearby brain regions are crucially involved in processing the meaning of speech as well as phonology. And both these brain regions are activated during reading too, even though you're not normally hearing or speaking when you read. But in addition to these regions, Reading also activates regions in the visual cortex, such as the so-called visual word form area. Now, the visual word form area is on the bottom surface of the left hemisphere of the brain, toward the back, and it's critically important in the visual recognition of letters and written words. So, normal readers activate areas involved in speech processing as well as areas involved in visual recognition. What about dyslexics? Well, numerous neuroimaging studies of dyslexics have repeatedly found the same thing. Dyslexics exhibit less neural activity in Wernicke's area and in visual cortex than normal readers do. Some studies have also reported the same thing in Broca's area, although those results are not as consistent. Furthermore, Structural neuroimaging studies have found that these same brain regions are physically smaller in dyslexics compared with normal readers. And perhaps most interesting of all, a number of studies have now found evidence that the connections between these brain areas don't work as efficiently as they should in dyslexia. In particular, the visual areas that recognize words and the language areas that process phonology and meaning don't seem to be able to communicate with each other as effectively as they need to. And obviously, that kind of communication is critical to reading. After all, those are presumably the very connections that the brain uses to associate the sight of a word with both its sound and its meaning. So if those connections aren't working as well as they should, then it makes sense that reading would be disrupted. And sure enough, it is. Finally, let's turn to the issue of treatment. What can be done to help a dyslexic child learn to read? Well, schools in the U.S. are actually legally obligated to implement what's called an Individualized Education Program, or IEP, for any child diagnosed with dyslexia. The child will first be tested to identify specific areas where remediation is needed, and then a tailored education plan is developed to address those needs and maximize the child's chance of academic success. Now, in the case of dyslexia, that plan might include intense training in recognizing the phonemes that make up words and in mapping those phonemes onto letters. 
Then the child might get substantial practice at sounding words out in order to build up reading speed and accuracy. Another common approach is to try to build up a vocabulary of frequent words that the child learns to recognize relatively quickly and accurately. And finally, the plan might include training on comprehending the meaning of sentences and paragraphs that have been read. Now, it's important to keep in mind that although this kind of intense, individualized training can definitely help, it's not a cure, and reading problems tend to persist into adulthood. Nevertheless, most dyslexics can significantly improve their reading, especially if the problem is detected early. In particular, children who get help with their reading starting in kindergarten or first grade can often improve enough to succeed in elementary school and high school, while children who start getting help later may have a tougher time and may not be able to catch up. Okay, well, let's finish up. In this lecture, we reviewed some of what scientists are learning about specific learning disabilities, such as dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and especially dyslexia. We emphasized that these are disabilities in specific academic domains that are not related to poor intelligence, low motivation, or lack of education. And we also learned that dyslexia is primarily associated with phonological impairments rather than visual impairments, and that neuroimaging studies are beginning to shed light on its neural substrates. But we have one more lecture left in our tour of the learning brain. And in that final lecture, I want to step back and summarize some of the major lessons that we can draw from the course in order to optimize our learning. What are some of the key take-home messages that we can put to use in order to be more effective learners in our daily lives? That's what we'll talk about in the final lecture of the course, and I hope you'll join me.